conversation today. Um, so let me just begin with this. The we're talking eschatology today. Eschatology. I write this on the board. Eschatology, which ology. You've heard a lot of ologies this summer. It means the study of the eschaton is Greek for last things. So we are talking about the study of the last things today. And there's a couple things I just want to frame up our conversation as we get going. Um, I've already kind of mentioned we need grace and humility when it comes to this topic. I have watched a ton of videos, podcasts, all, even listened to conversations, and it is so interesting to me how much Christians can agree on everything, like literally everything, but then when it comes to one of these views, they'll have some differences, and then they're just like vicious enemies. I don't think that's the right way to go forward. I think we need to have some grace and humility because honestly, there is some things that we don't know. Um, but my hope for today is that you do have confidence moving forward in what can and maybe what cannot be known when it comes to the eschaton, the last things. The second thing that I just want to say before we get rolling is, um, I guess, moving between two bad, immature positions, okay? So the first immature position when it comes to eschatology, the last things, is what I've heard called eschato, how do you pronounce this? Eschatomania. Eschatomania. Where everything they see in the newspapers is revelation. This is a sign of the end times. We are in the last days. These, I don't know, the Antichrist is right around the corner. Biden is the Antichrist. Trump was the Antichrist. Whoever else was before that, Barack Obama, and then so on and so forth, was the Antichrist. That's a little bit of eschatomania. Every single thing is viewed through the lens that might be a little faulty. On the other end of an immature view, and this is where I was, is eschatophobia. Eschatophobia. It's a, just a desire to not want to get into Revelation not want to talk about these things because they're kind of weird, you know? So if anyone starts bringing up what Jesus says at Matthew 24 or Revelation at all, I'd be like, yeah, it'll all pan out, pan out in the end. Let's just believe in the gospel. Amen? Amen. I don't think that's the mature view either. Because what I hope that you see at the end of this time today is that the biblical authors, they always spoke of the end times, the coming of Christ, in a way that gave the current believers hope and purpose. What it would be like then helped the believers now live with hope and purpose. And that's what I hope it is for you, that you have a little bit more confidence moving forward, that you hope in what Jesus is doing now and will do then. That's what I hope for you. So, let me begin our time with the final statement of the Lord in the Apostles' Creed. 
So the Apostles' Creed, they walk through, this is God, this is Spirit, and this is Jesus. And the final statement goes something like this. And then we'll pray. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. That is what Christians have believed at all times, and that's what we believe too. Let me pray, and we'll get rolling. Lord Jesus, I ask that you be with us today. I ask that you would give me the ability to speak your truth, that whatever is in your word would be evident and clear to your people, and that they could have confidence in you. God, I ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to your truth, and I pray that we could help, that you would help us understand you and the things that you have promised to come in a way that we have not understood before. I ask that you give us hope in the coming age and hope in you. It's in Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so before we do anything else, I would just like to spend just a little bit of time defining this phrase, the last things, end times. So, end times, put very basically, this is not going to be very uh, glorious, end times, there's kind of two views in Scripture, okay? This comes from Hebrews 1, uh, verses 1 through 3. It says, in the former times, God spoke to us through this way, but in the last days, God is speaking to us through His Son. And so it seems that there is former and last days. When we speak of the last days, we kind of jump right to here. You know? We, we're jumping here. And I think that would be, in the Apostles' mind, that would be the, the coming of the Lord. I'm just going to write Jesus with a crown. Forgive me for a bad drawing. Maybe they would say, yeah, that might be the last, last days or last squared days. But they don't really have a category of that. It's all the last days. Another verse that mentions this, Second um, Peter, I believe, 3 says scoffers are going to arise in the last days saying, when will the Lord come? And then he's talking to them in that day about scoffers who have already arisen. It seems that they're already living in the last days. Or here's another verse. We actually have already mentioned the Antichrist. We're already jumping right to it. First uh, John, just picture when this is happening. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist. It seems that John said two things right there. One, they're already living in the last days. And two, the Antichrist that they, we have this big picture of has already come. It's not this one it's anyone who says that Jesus is not who He says He is. So just setting it up, 
We're already living in the last days. Um, biblically speaking, where'd my marker go? We like to use this term as the already, not yet, kingdom of God. That will be fulfilled when Jesus comes back. So that is how we define the last days. Now, the majority of our conversation is going to be spent talking about the second coming. That's actually your handout is on the second coming or what is called the parousia. Which literally just means the coming or the presence. And I would like to just go through four to five things that Christians should know when it comes to this idea of the parousia. Um, And then we're going to walk through some of the things that are following that's not necessarily the parousia itself, but afterwards. Okay, are we following? The parousia? Okay, I'm going to throw a lot of terms at you. So here's the first one. The parousia, the coming of Christ, the second coming, Jesus came once, then He ascended into heaven in Acts 1, and He is going to come again at the end of time. This, this parousia, will be visible to everyone. Visible to everyone. Question, can someone tell me what happened on October 1st, 1914? Can someone tell me what happened on October 1st, 1914? Give it a shot. Is that the onset of World War I? I don't believe so. It's a good guess. It's around that time. October 1st, 1914. What happened? Guys, how do you not know? How do you not know what happened on October 1st, 1914? I can't believe you didn't. Guys, Jesus came back on October 1st, 1914. You don't know this? Jesus came back. No, the, the parousia happened. I'm joking right now, so in just case you're, too, you're confused. Okay? I'm joking. Okay? The Jehovah's Witnesses claim that Jesus actually have, has already returned, but He just returned invisibly. The parousia already happened. He is on earth right now, and He is reigning, but you can't really see Him. Okay? Compare that to this verse. In Revelation 1.7, look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be, amen. I don't know how they got the invisible coming of Christ, but uh, that doesn't really seem to be what John is saying. Also, Revelation 19, when he judges everyone at his coming, but we'll get to that part later. So, it will be visible, Jesus will be visible, but He'll be also visible to all Jehovah's Witnesses. Second point, that Jesus is going to return, and He is going to return bodily. I don't think this is something our culture struggles very much, but I'm going to go ahead and say the verse. Acts 1 says this, Why do you look up into heaven? So the, the apostles are all standing around the Lord, the Lord sorry, where He was. The Lord ascended into heaven, and the angels show up to these guys that are standing in heaven, and they said, what are you doing? 
Why are you sitting in heaven? Don't you know that he is going to return the exact same way that he left? Meaning, he ascended bodily into heaven, and he is going to descend the same way. 1 Corinthians 15 says something similar. So he is going to come back bodily. The next one is two, actually, I'm going to put them together because I actually quote the same verses to prove both points. It, it, it will be imminent and unexpected. The coming of Christ will be imminent and unexpected. Eminence, thank you very much. Had a lot of puns on your name. Eminent. What do we mean by imminent? Imminent means that there is nothing else that needs to happen before the coming of the Lord. That at any moment, Jesus could show up and it all be over. The next stage in salvific history is that the Lord could show up. There are so many verses that says, Watch out, because I will come to you like a thief in the night. Here's one of them. 1 Thessalonians 5. I'm not even going to write to you about times. Paul's like, when it, concerning this, concerning the Perusia, I'm not even going to write, because it doesn't matter. Because Jesus is going to show up to you like a thief in the night. Like someone's robbing you. If you knew when the thief was coming, you would have stayed up. But you don't. That's what Jesus is. And unexpected. The same idea. No one knows when Jesus is going to come back. No one knows when Jesus is going to come back. Um, there's parables that he gives that it's like a, a, an owner going into a far country and it'll be such a long time that the servants will be lulled into sleep while they're waiting. But he says, you, my servants, stay watching, stay diligent, because you don't know when I'm going to return. You don't know the hour. It will be unexpected. And this is the fun part, okay? So I've gotten to talk to a lot of you guys over the uh, weeks, and some of you will say something along the lines of, uh, man, yeah, Jesus could come back any time. He could come back on Monday at 3 o'clock. But now he's not going to come back on Monday at 3 o'clock because I expect it. And he said it was going to be unexpected. One, I don't think that's how it works. I don't think we can bind the Lord and his plans by our guess. But two, the sole fact that you stayed vigilant is like a good thing. You know, like that's, that's in the parable. You are one of the servants that stayed and watched. I want to read this verse to you because I think it's just beautiful. It's at the end of the parable that Jesus gives in Luke 12. And he says this, For those servants who are vigilant, who live their lives in light of my coming, he says this, Truly I tell you, he, the master, will dress himself to serve and will have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. That's beautiful. The servants who stay serving, the Lord will come and say, I'm going to serve them. That's a beautiful thought. That's what Jesus promises. And finally, one last thought of the parousia is it is unified. It is once. Now there's debate on this, and we're going to walk through this debate in a little bit, but let me just read you some of the scriptures so you can just start thinking about it right now, and it'll help set our stage for later, okay? 
a unified one coming and then the new age. Here's some scriptures. 2 Peter 3.10 The day of the Lord will come like a thief. You heard that part already. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Okay, it seemed like when this happened, it all goes down in one moment. At least in Peter's time, right? Seemed like that was the case. One event. Okay? Um, Matthew 25. These are the Lord's words. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Okay, so He sits on His throne, everyone's gathered in, and then He judges sheep from goats. Okay, seems to be one event. Another uh, moment, Luke 5, He says, They're going to hear My voice. When the hour comes, they're going to raise from the dead, some to life, some to everlasting torment. It seemed to be one unified event. Okay? This is going to come into play later when we get into some of the debates. But that is the parousia. That is the coming of Christ. Now, I want to walk briefly through some of the results. We're actually moving not necessarily into the coming, but into the new age. And I just think, because there's some of you guys that may not have heard this stuff or may not have heard of walkthrough in some of the verses, I just want to take some time just to say, this is what Christians have believed, and this is why. So the first one is, the redemption of the world will happen at that time. The redemption of the world will happen at that time. You've already heard the Second Peter 3 verse. Creation will be rolled up in fire, will renew everything. Uh, Romans 8 talks about creation longing for that coming of the sons of God, the renewal of the world. Um, The next one is the death of death and the death of sin. You can put in parentheses, our glorification goes hand in hand with this event. And that is 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about that phrase, because of Jesus' resurrection, we can now say, death, where is your sting? Jesus has triumphed over death. And then Revelation 20, where it gets into the picture where death and Hades itself are thrown into the lake of fire and locked away. The death of death and the death of sin will all happen after this moment. Third, the resurrection of everyone. Everyone will be raised to life at that moment. So it's not just some. We're going to get to the some here in a little bit. But everyone will be raised to life at that moment. Jesus says every, the sea will give up their dead. There's nothing that can keep the dead from Him. They will give up their dead and then they will go to judgment, which is our final point. The judgment of some. The judgment of non-believers. Now I want to just sit here for a moment. Because this is one of the few places, actually I'd say many places in Christianity that our culture hates. Is this idea of hell. 
this idea of eternal damnation. And I just want to tell you how the Bible speaks of it. Okay? Because Jesus is somehow viewed as one of the most loving people in all of history. He loved everyone. He healed the sick. And at the same time, He says, if you do not believe in Me, you are still fallen in your sins and you will face eternal punishment. Because only in Christ can people be made right with God. How can someone be the most loving person in life and yet the very things He said be hated? So I want to just say this. When it comes to non-Christians, I don't even know if there's any in the room, but hell is a scary thought. And I don't want to take that away from you. I'd ask you to consider this. Is Jesus true or not? Because if He's true, then listen to His words. Because God we believe, is fully just. And a loving and just God will judge perfectly. And even though He is just, He has provided a way out. And this is the justice of God. That people who have chosen to be apart from God, who have chosen sin, He is going to give them that. He's going to give them eternity apart from Him. But He has also given them Himself, namely Jesus Christ. So hell is real, but it doesn't have to be in Christ. Now to believers, I've actually talked to a lot of people, and this is something that they're kind of ashamed of. Like it's a belief that they kind, they really don't wish was real. They really don't wish that came up in conversations, and I understand. Um, I understand it's kind of awkward when people ask about hell and you don't really want to talk about this. Um, but can I encourage you in this manner? We believe that God is truly just and truly good. And we believe that God doesn't want anyone to go to hell and He's providing a way out for everyone. But you do not need to be ashamed of anything that the Lord does. There is a verse, I wish I had it wrote down, but it says, Everyone at that time will look to the Lord and they say, You did rightly, a judge of the world. Every single person. The Lord is just in His judgments, and you do not need to be ashamed. It is interesting to me, us being in a Western culture, we don't really face much um, hardship. We don't face much victimization. But those who do face true oppression in the world, they find comfort in the judgment of God. They yearn for that. Say, God, please judge the wicked rightly. And God will. And I don't think you need to be ashamed of that. So hell is real, and God will judge justly. So those are some of the views of the end times, um, the parousia, and its results. Now you have some questions. Um, you have three questions. I'm going to give you about ten minutes before we move into debating some of the views in Revelation 20. So take about 10 minutes and we'll come back. Let me begin 
our time by reading Revelation 20. And then I just want to ask you how you think this scripture is going to be fulfilled. Once again, humility and grace. We are just giving each other humility and grace on this. Uh, but let me read. Then I saw an angel coming down from the heaven. I, I pause just one second. So for those of you that are new to um, Revelation, it is just bathed in, it, it's apocalyptic imagery. And so it's full of signs, like literally the opening of the, the book says, this is the signs that Jesus gave to John. Um, but it's full of like visions. And so um, what I've heard it, and I like the way this put, use your imagination more than your, I guess, strict reasoning. Like Paul, it's a letter, a straightforward letter. Revelation, it's like, what is this image that's being painted? And what's that image trying to convey to us? Understand? So that's part of the confusion that we always get. But anyway, enough of that. Revelation 20, and I'm going to ask you, how do you think this is going to be fulfilled? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That is the millennium. That's what we're going to talk about for the second half. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it, so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had, not been accept- who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed." This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for that wonderful thing called the millennium. So, what do you think? Some of the images, how do you think it's going to be fulfilled? Just what were were the conversations that took place at your, uh, your little groups? Carter. Um, so one of the things that kind of struck me at least was uh, kind of the significance of what that event is describing and just imagining that what, what that, that would go notice um, and how that would kind of clash with like the unified happenings hmm. of the uh, time. Um, but like I imagine you include your own Satan from the picture and you also have the reign of Christ and the saints. I'm trying to process what I'm hearing. It's kind of like you heard things like a unified coming of Christ, like Second Peter and Matthew 25, but then you saw like a chronological sequence of events that seemed to be different things, right? And you're just kind of like, what's up with that? Excellent question. Anything else you guys notice? 
Allie. I really have no idea. It's okay. I don't either. No, I'm just kidding. Um, well, maybe. <laughs> Part of verse 4, where it's talking about the people who didn't be headed because of their testimony about Jesus, sounds to me like they might be like martyrs or people that have died for their faith. And then it talks about them. Um, talks about like this first resurrection. First resurrection. Yeah. So, like, there's that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's all you got. Okay. It's the only time in Scripture that's ever mentioned a first resurrection. By the way, yeah. and then, like, maybe it has to do with like people that were dead when hmm. the coming of Jesus comes, and people who weren't dead, and then maybe not. Okay, know? okay. So maybe, maybe they're on Earth. Maybe they're not on Earth. Is that what you're saying? Maybe. What? Maybe they're maybe they're alive on Earth. Maybe they're dead on Earth. Okay. Like some like some people are already dead right now. Okay. Some of us are not dead. Okay. The challenge that's thrown back, the challenge that's thrown back, is where does it say on earth in Revelation 20 in those texts? It doesn't. But doesn't. when we talk about a new heaven and a new earth in the Bible, we talk about it as coming on earth. So that's why I think about it. Okay. It's fair. It's fair. Anything else? Other thoughts? That's a great point. That's Please great. ask someone else a No, no, you're good. You're good. I just want you guys to see what's there and begin to wrestle with it before I just start unloading these topics that are just going to be really confusing. Okay? Anything else you saw and wrestled with at your group? Uh, why does Satan have to be let out for a short time? That's a good question. Why is he bound? Why is he let out? Who is who are these two? Who are these two people? Yeah, and if you saw, if you saw, and once again, I just want you to wrestle with it for just one second, okay? We're doing a deep dive, like in two minutes, okay? If you saw in Revelation 19, the end of Revelation 19, all of these people died, like all the people that hated Christ, that are not of the believers. They should be dead, and they were cast into the pit of fire with the false prophet. I mean, literally, you can read Revelation 19 right there. And then, what's happening in Revelation 20? You know, like, is it, is it repeat? <laughs> is Christ killing everyone again? Like, what? I thought death was supposed to be dead. You know, I thought there was supposed to be no more sin and death anymore. What could be going on there? We're going to get to that point over here. So wait your turn. Anything else? One more. You guys have done excellent so far. Excellent with wrestling with Revelation 20. Anything else? Yeah. I find it interesting you know, how a lot of people are seeing this as like just to be, like, say, metaphorical and stuff. And like growing up, my parents took this very literally. Yeah. Like completely. Yeah. And so reading this, it's just like, you know, this is the most metal scripture I've ever seen. Either way, it's going to be metal. Yeah. I, I, I'm just, 
Yeah. I love that. I love that. That's going to be on the conclusion. These two guys are going to interpret it a little more symbolically. These guys are going to interpret literally. Either way, it's spiritually metal. I love it. Okay. Let's jump in. So we are in Revelation 20. This is what's called the millennium. The millennium, the millennial reign. I'm probably going to shorten that for me later and just say mill so I don't uh, get confused in my wording. But this is the only time in Scripture that this is ever spoken of. The millennial reign of Christ. The thousand years. Are those thousand years symbolic? Are they literal? I have my answer. I think yes. Um, my job right now is going to just walk you through some of the, uh, the views. And so let's do that before we get going. Um, so the first view, these two views are, I'm going to go very briefly, briefly on these. I'm going to spend some time on this one because this is the American eschatology. And I honestly, I'm just going to come right out and say it. I believe it's the least biblical of all of them. Okay? And then this is the one that I land on and a lot of Sunnybrook ministers land on. And I'll give you some arguments over why I believe that. But either way, let's just start walking through them. Post-millennialism. That's on the back of your paper. Post-millennialism. I'd like you guys to draw those charts so that you can follow along with what I'm saying. Post-millennialism. So we have Jesus came right here. And then, let me follow along in my notes. The idea of post-millennialism, so that thousand-year reigns, that's the millennium. Jesus is going to return after the millennium. And so the idea is that the church is just going to do such a good job on earth. The church is going to take the gospel. It's going to transform society and culture. It's going to make a Christian utopia of everything. So much so that we are going to usher in the millennium. Whatever the millennium is in Revelation 20, it's going to, we are going to bring it in. And so Jesus will return and then the millennium will be somewhere in right here. A couple things to note that you probably already can tell is this is a very optimistic worldview. The church is going to triumph. The gospel cannot be stopped. It will go to the ends of the age. Okay? Um, here's some weaknesses. I'm just going to keep going because a lot of, we don't really wrestle with this very much. Um, who are the armies that face Christ in Revelation 19 if the whole earth is taken over by the church and the gospel? And Jesus doesn't really seem to say things like, my kingdom is of this world, or like, you will triumph completely. Um, he seems to say, you're going to have trouble here, but take heart, I've overcome the evil one. So just one thought. I want to tell you the history of this, because I find it fascinating. Um, this, the heyday of this was in 1800s, when the church did an amazing job in missions and in society. Okay, it was going and it was, missions were flourishing and it seemed like the world was really changing. And then it struggled deeply in the 1900s. 
Can anyone guess why an optimistic worldview would struggle in the 1900s? Say it loud. War. War. The world that's supposed to be taken over by Christ is now murdering each other. You know, World War I and World War II were pretty significant blows to this worldview. And post-millennialism, Jesus coming after post-millennialism, struggled ever since. Moving on. Now we're going to come to this idea of what's called pre-millennialism. Pre-millennialism. Pre-mill. So, the idea of pre-mill is it is literal in its interpretation. So, when you read Revelation 19, it said the world is destroyed by Christ, and then 20,000 years, they say a thousand years are exactly what a thousand years are, and then Jesus will destroy everyone again at Gog and Magog. That's a literal interpretation. Other things to note, um, it's called historic because this is what some of the early church fathers believed. I say some because it didn't seem to be whole, like all of the church fathers believed this, but church fathers like Justin Martyr, um, I believe Irenaeus believed this, a guy named Papias or Papias, who I hate. You can go look that up. We made jokes about this guy in Bible college, so not for that. Anyway, historic premillennialism. Um, the idea of premillennialism is pessimism, or as pessimists like to say, realism. You know, I'm a I'm a pessimist, so whatever. Um, the idea is that Jesus returned, and the world is going to get worse and worse. It's going to get so bad that only that Jesus has to come before the millennium can come in. So Jesus returns, and then bam, millennium happens. Okay? World gets worse, millennium is ushered in. Pre-millennialism. Make sense? Now we get to pre-millennial dispensationalism. Pre-millennial dispensationalism. And I've got a lot to say on this one. Um, it's actually the one that I grew up in. If you were raised in the church in America, you probably were raised in this um, without... Uh, maybe you knew it, maybe you didn't. Um, here's just some of the key markers of dispensationalism. Okay, So if you have ever heard or believed in a secret rapture coming to take the church... That is a distinctly dispensationalist worldview. If you have this idea of a great tribulation and Antichrist coming, that is things that go along with dispensationalism. If you believe that ethnic Israel is still a part of the people of God and that we as nations need to protect Israel, that is a part of the dispensationalist Worldview. So we have key points. Israel equals God's people and rapture. Key defining marks. 
The idea, the name dispensations, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here um, because it doesn't really pertain to our conversation today, but just so you know it. Um, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say it. Um, there's covenantal. So the more you believe in the unified work of God, like God works and swore everlasting covenants, and those everlasting covenants came to Jesus, and then now we who are in Christ are in His covenantal promises, the less you are dispensational. So unified work of God, fractured work of God. The dispensationalists view that God worked differently at different times. There's actually seven different dispensations. You can look this up on a Wikipedia page later. But unified versus fraction, fractional work of God. With the rapture theology, I heard it mentioned, and um, I do just want to spend a brief amount of time before... Um, actually, I'm going to just write this. I'm going to stop messing around. So here, note the simplicity of this. Came, Jesus came one time. Millennium, Jesus came second time. Jesus came one time. Jesus came twice. Millennium. Okay? Here we get dispensationalism, which obviously it would go down, but I'm not going to get messy here because it's still pessimistic. Um, we have the world gets worse. We have the secret rapture. Secret rapture. So that's the second coming of Christ. Tribulation. Primarily of Israel. Then we have a third coming of Christ with the church. Then we have millennium. Then we have final judgment day. Okay? Just compare those for one second. Clean, a little bit messy. With the rapture theology, that is based off of three different verses. Um, two things to note about this. One is no one else in the history of the church ever believed in rapture theology until 1830. I'm going to get to that point in a second. Um, two, it's based off of what I believe is a misinterpretation of three different verses. Revelation 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, and Matthew 24. And I just want to tell you about Matthew 24 because I just find it funny. Matthew 24, um, we had Tim said it earlier. It says, this is the one, it says, In the coming of the days of Noah, there's going to be people working in the field. And in some, there's going to be two one will be taken and the other is going to be left. And that's where the books Left Behind gets there. Do you, anyone, raise your hand if you've ever heard of Left Behind. Okay, oh, praise God. <laughs> praise God. I know it too. Okay, Left Behind. It's my background too. So, the idea is you do not want to be left behind. You do not want to be left behind. There's going to be so much bad things happening to you and Left Behind. Let's back up one second, okay? Jesus says, In the beginning, as it was in the days of Noah, when the flood came and took them all away, so it will be, one will be in the field, 
and will be taken. The other will be left behind. A flood comes and takes them away. Who do you want to be? If a flood is coming, it's going to take you. What's it get? Do you want to be the one that's taken away or do you want to be the one that's left behind? You don't want to be taken. Okay? Say that again. Matthew 24. Matthew, <laughs> you want to go sorry. Matthew 24. Flood imagery is going to come and it's going to take you all away. And only some are going to get left behind. And these, the image, the flood is going to come and kill people. Okay? The left behind image is the ones that don't die in the coming flood. Okay? You're starting to see it's the opposite. The guy that wrote Left Behind series, the ones that were left behind were the good ones. Or actually, sorry, were the bad ones. The ones that are left behind in Jesus' words are the ones that are still alive after the Roman armies come and flood in the destruction of Jerusalem. There's an interesting backwards nature, what I believe a misinterpretation in Matthew 24. You can go look that up later. Okay? There's rapture theology for you. And finally, this was developed in... 1830 by a guy named John Darby. Quick history lesson that doesn't really pertain to our conversation right now. Um, The immaculate conception of Mary, that she was always sinless her entire life, and the idea that the Pope has the ability to speak infallibly because the Pope said so, happened in 1850. Okay? Now that's odd. Because the church has never said anything before that. This happened in 1830, and the church has never believed in this before that. If you guys remember at the beginning of our conversation, we believe in, when we're walking through stages of the truth, there's scripture, there's tradition, there's reason, and there's experience. If you speak in ways that the church has never spoken, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying you should be very, very careful. Because there might be a reason why your theology does not sound like anything else the church has never said. It was developed in 1830. Moving forward. Some weaknesses to consider. Um, I'm belaboring my point here, but I want to say it. Views the church. This views the church as two distinct entities. Go check out Galatians three, Romans four, Romans nine, and Ephesians two. Seems to say the exact opposite. The idea that death and sin still exist. After the coming of Christ, the idea that Jesus comes secretly and comes three to four times is odd. And one more, one more before we move on. I know, I know. One more. The idea of the Great Tribulation. So, 
I know that many of us were raised in a Western society where we believe that we have to watch out because there's going to come a day when things are going to get so bad, you know, great persecutions are going to come upon us, and we believe that's, that's prophesied. A quick question, what do you think that theology, you, if you said that to a Chinese Christian in the Chinese church right now, how would they wrestle with that? Because they already are losing homes. They already are losing their lives. They're losing families. To them, the Great Tribulation has already come. If you rewinded a little bit, and you said that to someone in Jerusalem when Islam was sweeping through, what would they have said? It would seem that they have already experiencing whatever this Great Tribulation is right then. If you rewinded even further back to when Christians are being burned in Roman fires, it would seem that maybe John was talking about a tribulation that they were currently experiencing. So one of the things I'm going to be arguing for right then is the church is always in tribulation. And this idea of the great tribulation that is coming may be a Western idea. May be a Western idea. And finally... Let's move on to amillennialism. This is where I land. Revelation 20, Jesus Christ. So, we have the world, and it is a constant back and forth between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan until Jesus comes back. It is also pessimistic, it is not one way or another, but the millennium itself, we believe, is a spiritual reign in, with Christ in heaven. So when you hear things like, the people came to life, and this was the first resurrection, we would say that is the intermediate state. That is the same thing that happens in 2 Corinthians 5. In fact, the name amillennialism is kind of a jab that comes from these guys. A better word that I believe is realized millennialism or already not yet. The millennium is already happening that Christ is reigning right now and the saints are reigning right now with Him, that they came to life and that He will come again. But it will be one time and that will be what the church has always called the second coming. So this is a spiritual reign. These two are both spiritual. This is literal. A spiritual reign with Christ in heaven where the departed are with Christ right now reigning. We believe that is true. 2 Corinthians 5 says that's true. We believe that because Revelation 20 is the only time that ever speaks of a first resurrection and a millennium, that it is, one, neater, but two, it just makes sense that they John isn't speaking literally, but he might be talking about the intermediate state. That's the idea. Okay? Great question. A um, couple other reasons why I believe in this. I'm just going to roll through these. 
Revelation 19 and 20, where the world ends twice, could be what's called recapitulation, which is basically, he says something right here, Revelation 19, he says something right here, and then the final battle is right here, Revelation 20. Revelation 19, and then I believe 16, when he speaks of Armageddon. It's the idea, same concept from different angles. Recapitulation. And then finally, Jesus promises trouble in this world. Jesus promises that the church will be struggling. John 17, his high priestly prayer, he says, Lord, I do not want to take them out. Do not take them out. But please protect them from the evil one while they're in it. In that we believe the church is in tribulation while they're in the world. But to those who conquer, they will reign with Christ. Okay, you survived some theology lesson, some eschatology lesson. Here is some, regardless, regardless of where you land, here are some conclusions that you can have when it comes to views of the end times. The first is this, that righteousness wins. That righteousness wins, and it does matter how you live, that the Lord is watching, and He does care. He notices. And what goes on, all the mess in this world, does not matter because Jesus is going to triumph in the end. Righteousness wins in the end. Evil, second. Evil, death, pain, sorrow will be completely vanquished. You saw that image of them being thrown into the abyss. You've thrown into hell and the key is locked away. The Lord will do it Himself. Another verse says, He will wipe away every tear from your eyes to those who conquer, to those who remain true in this world. He will Wipe away the tears of the eyes. And finally, the saints will reign. The, just as the Lord does reign right now, the saints will reign with Him. Because that is what He promised. John calls it conquering. But you, when it comes to this stuff, remember our first conversation of eschatomania and eschatophobia. You should live as Christians always lived. With the imminency, the immediacy, the weight of the coming of Jesus Christ. Not with the fear that He might come and I might be in judgment. I'm not saying that fear is not a good thing. Especially if you're living outside of line with Him. Maybe that's a good thing. But that's not our primary motivation is not fear. Our primary motivation when it comes to this stuff is not figuring out the signs, trying to determine what is the nations, who is the Antichrist, what's going to happen to Israel. As we said, I don't believe that's any of the Bible's picture. It's not fear. It's not figuring out the signs of the time. Our primary motivation is to live with a conscious, hope-filled expectation 
of seeing the Lord Jesus. A conscious, hope-filled expectation. Remember that He said to those that stay vigilant, He will serve them. The Master will become a servant to them because that is the Lord's character. That is eschatology. Live with the imminency of the love of Christ and seeing Him again because it will be glorious. Allow me to end our time how Peter ends his last letter. When he ends with eschatology, he wants to remind them of the hope and purpose that Christians are living today. He says this, 2 Peter 3.14 So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Let me pray. Father God, I thank You for the chance to talk about this. I know these are some conversations that are, are just are frankly confusing and that we don't get to have a lot. I pray that what needs to stick will stick. I pray if it is just the general idea that You are coming back and that it could be at any moment and that we can long for that with hope because You will reign victoriously. God, I pray that that sticks. God, I, but God, I pray for confidence. As we walk forward, we would not be afraid to speak of what we believe that You will do, that You will return for those who love You because You love us. Jesus, I thank You for this time. I thank You for this people. I pray that You'd be with them. It's in Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. That's all we got.